I think there's a lot of pain, there's inflation and crime, and the culture is collapsing, so many families feel it, see. Um, but I, I do think there's a sense of um, rambunctiousness right now uh, and displeasure among the American people that will no doubt be felt and heard through these midterm elections. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. That was our special guest on this episode, Raymond Arroyo of Fox News and EWTN, weighing in on the midterm elections coming up. America is in pain, lots of pain, financial pain. Just look at our record inflation and people living paycheck to paycheck. It's awful and there are other problems out there in our society and we'll know the outcome of this midterm election sometime next week after voters go to the polls. There is some good news to report despite all this doom and gloom. It's Raymond Arroyo's latest book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. It is a beautiful story and a beautiful book in many ways you will discover in my interview with Raymond coming up. If you can situate them in a certain place at the time of the birth of Christ, it lends credence not only to them and what they were about, but also to the one they sought. It lends credence to the historicity and the roots and the reality of the Christ child. And that was Raymond Arroyo, who I had on here last year when he told us about his previous tome, the spider who stole Christmas. But before we get to my interview with him, it's time first for our weekly segment of Future Shock 2.0 with Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back to Future Shock 2.0. Mercer has come out with its latest report on inside employees' minds. What is inside employees' minds? Hey, thanks for having me back, John. Uh, if there is one thing we know for certain, organizations and their business leaders aren't going to be able to rely on historical data, especially when it comes to solutions for this perfect labor storm, future shock 2.0, whatever you want to call it, for managing labor markets. Uh, as you know, and our future shock 2.0 listeners have heard me say over and over again, we're living in never normal times. In a prior segment, I mentioned that we were headed into a job full recession. So that's something new as a new term. Well, based on the just released GDP numbers, 2.6% growth uh, doesn't sound like a recession to me. I don't, maybe it, maybe it's a recession to other people. But at the same time, we, we still have the highest inflation rate in 40 years, the highest mortgage rates in 20 years. Consumer confidence is still positive, although it's teetering on the edge. Uh, and despite all this mixed and negative news, unemployment still remains low, below 4%. Nothing seems to make sense. So let's take a look at what's ahead for employers and employees. Now, just the other day, a new white paper in a study from Mercer, Inside Employees' Minds Research. What's going on in, in employees' heads? So while many employers seem to be hoping that this great resignation and quit, quiet quitting is going to come to an end, my advice based on what I'm reading is I wouldn't bet on it. According to the survey, this Mercer study, one in three employees are still considering leaving their employer. That's up from one in four last year. And if we wanted to look at what's going on in their heads uh, and why they might be searching for new jobs, uh, covering monthly expenses jumped from number nine priority on their list in 2021 
the number one spot in 2022. People are concerned. Inflation's starting to hit their wallets. Um, number two, interesting. I don't have an answer for this. Being able to retire. So this, this certainly is reflected in the age groups, which I'll get into in just a minute. Number three is workload and life balance. We'll come back to that too. Normally in recessions, in high inflation uh, times, high interest rate times, people hang on to their jobs. They're willing to sacrifice their bodies, their self, their, their personal lives, but that may not be the case this time. And then physical health and mental health are number four and five on their priority list. So as I said, the latter is interesting because in the past, if you rely on historical data, employers always had the upper hand during a recession or during an economic downturn. And that just doesn't seem to be the case this time. You know, you know, in most cases, if you read between the lines and, and, and dig down a little bit deep, there's more to that. So if anyone's thinking that one solution is going to fit all, you're probably living in a parallel universe or, or somewhere in the past. Um, when you start digging into these stats, the, the rest, the unrest is very uneven. We'll have more from Ira Wolf next week on the fascinating Mercer study. Ira is a workforce and labor trends expert. TEDx talker, author, and host of the top-rated Geeks Geezers and Googleization podcast. Also listening to Odeon Capital Conversations, the top-rated Apple podcast on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group and with yours truly. In our latest episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we'll look back on a number of predictions made by Dick Beauvais, including inflation, interest rates, the Federal Reserve, and the changing nature of the U.S., and global economies on banking, and we will look ahead on what may come next. It's all up there on Odeon Capital Conversations. Listen to it on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. My guest is Raymond Arroyo, out with a beautiful Christmas book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. It's a must-buy visual adventure capturing the wonder of the Christmas season. The book is stunningly illustrated by Diane Lefire and published by Sophia Institute Press. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Raymond, welcome back to my show. I had you on, um, it's got to be a year ago, and we were talking about your earlier Christmas book, and you have a new one out now, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. But yes. my question, my first question for you is, how do you find the time to do this? I mean, you're on <laughs> Fox, you're on EWTN, you have all these multiple projects, you're working on your next book, I suspect. Yes. I, I, you know, you're a bundle of creative energy. Uh, you are an inspiration. You're very kind. Well, look, I, I I find the time. Other people golf. You know, I don't golf. As to anyone who's watched, I did a segment recently. A friend of mine did a celebrity golf tournament. I agreed to go. Anyone who saw that segment knows I don't golf at all. Um, and I my hobby really is, you know, writing. So I, I enjoy I enjoy it. It's an outlet. It's an escape from the things I have to cover day in and day out. 
uh, and it's a happy escape. So uh, this, and particularly these, what I call family reads, these picture books are, um, I think a particularly beautiful and uh, a compelling way to bring generations together, especially around the holidays. So I love this work. I consider it a big part of my, my personal calling and work. So it's called The Wise Men Who Found Christmas, Sophia yeah. Institute Press. This New York Times best-selling author, that's you, and award-winning broadcaster, takes readers on an enchanting epic adventure, unveiling the mystery of the wise men and their heart-pounding mission to discover the ultimate truths. But what's right. interesting about this is that you debunk um some legends here yes and they were not three kings apparently nor were <laughs> they from the far east or even persia so this Correct. is just some new historical evidence tell us about it well this is what surprised me i think most when i when i got into this project because look when i ask audiences when i um really when i go anywhere and i've done a lot of these uh, interviews john and and uh, book you know talk to groups massive groups on tour everywhere i go the first thing i ask is how many wise men were there and they all say three right the gospels say nothing about the number of wise men the gospel of mark and that's the only gospel they appear in all they talk about are the three gifts not three wise men. So where we got the three wise men, I don't know. It's legend. It's created over time. They don't really turn into the three wise men with names until the eighth century. But when you look at the first century, the Coptic church says there were 60 wise men. The Syrian and Armenian church says there were 12 wise men. So however many there were, there were probably more than three. They were not kings. King, you know, the, the kings from the Far East, this is, you know, the, the line always was, oh, they came from Africa and the Far East. And this is nonsense. First of all, they couldn't have politically gotten through the Roman Empire to get to the kid, first of all. But secondly, and more importantly, um, if you look at the first century sources, which I did, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, writing during the time of Jesus, he was a contemporary of Jesus, they all say the wise men came from Arabia. The immediate east. So when Matthew writes wise men from the east, he meant just the other side of the Dead Sea, current day Petra, the kingdom of Nabate. And once I discovered this reality and started to look into where is Nabate? What does this kingdom control? What does the political and religious landscape look like at this time? Suddenly, I realized this is a high stake adventure story, which had never been shared, which I'd never read. And I said, I can't tell another legend of these wise men and the kings coming from, you know, not knowing their way. No, this is a very different adventure story. One that is uh, driven by religious impulses on the part of the wise men and political impulses on the part of the kings involved, King Aratas of Nabate and King Herod of Judea. And all of those figures play a major role here. And it just changes the emphasis of the story a bit. And I think raises the stakes and the meaning and roots it in reality, which we needed for a long time. This new historical evidence and you bring it to the fore. The book is beautifully illustrated. Thank you. So it's, it's just a wonderful text and wonderful illustrations. Yeah. 
And, and Diane Lafayre, who's a Parisian artist, uh, did this. And I have to tell you, she she did such a magnificent job, just the, the emotion of the characters. But as important, she did the historic research to get the costuming and the sets right. I mean, in Petra, in the first spread, it takes place on a rooftop in Petra. And Petra, for those of you who might not know, if you know the Indiana Jones movies, the last Indiana Jones movie, that, or the third, I should say, it wasn't the last, maybe should have been the last, the, the, the final crusade, the last scene, uh, you have Sean Connery and Harrison Ford riding out of that temple built into a mountainside. That is Petra. And that's where the story opens. And you see here the 12 wise men. Oh, on the yes. Yes. These rooftops are are actually uh, historically accurate. Diane spent a lot of time in, in these details. But you know what? There are some people you work with. Um, I don't know who it was. Elia Kazan once said, casting is everything. You know, if you get the cast right, everything falls into place. That's how I feel about Diane. I, all I had to do was tell her I'm looking for this. And what she came back with was more beautiful, more potent, more emotional than even I had envisioned. And I think I made two adjustments after she came back with her final sketches, which I will tell you because I'm in television, John, I am a stickler about the visuals. They mm. have to be just right or it throws the story off, throws your story balance off. Diane's spreads were so beautiful. I made two notes. One I remember was, can you put tears in the wise man's eye, Melchior's eyes, when he's looking at the child? And she actually accomplished that. She, she did amazing. Wow. You look closely. <laughs> wow. She actually puts welling up tears in his eyes. And there's one other little thing about a horse that, that we adjusted. Other than that, I didn't touch a thing. She is incredible. So um, it's just great to work with an artist of that caliber and at that level. So those tears, was that from your imagination or something you heard about? Well, it says that they rejoiced greatly when they saw him. That's what the Gospels say. And I imagine mm. to, to hold this child yeah. that they had risked so much to, to, to be near yeah. must have been overwhelming. And look, I, I adapted here and adopted rather yeah. the archetypes that Venerable Bede, a British scholar and brother, you know, in the eighth century, he was the one who came up with the three names of the wise men, Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar, which are the traditional names that are given. Now, if you go back to earlier texts, they have very complicated Balachikovalech and Kumfachakach. He's doing a good job here. <laughs> but so I kept these traditional Western versions of the names. Uh, he also came up with the ages of the wise men, the elder, the middle-aged, and the younger wise men. I think to show that this yearning for truth comes at all stages in life, at and that the faith is passed on from the older to the younger generation and all take part. So it's a beautiful allegory. I decided to keep that. Um, though those names, this is interesting, John, I discovered from a, a, a Margaret Barker, who's a great biblical scholar, the three names actually just mean king in mm. different languages. Wow, uh, uh, Melchior is Hebrew, uh, Kaspar coming from the German, Kaiser, Kaspar, king, um, and uh, Balthazar is a dead Semitic language. And, but they all basically mean king in those languages. So why were they wise men? That has some significance. What is a wise man and why were they considered wise men? 
Well, they, you know, the gospel calls them magi from the East. Um, magi were traditionally men who, and you see it in the Old Testament, Daniel was a magi. He was a consultant to the king, read mm. dreams, and they, they, would, they would analyze the stars and mm. the prophecies to read the signs of the time so they could guide the king in making decisions with something other than what he could see and touch. It was sort of um, an elevated wisdom or a higher wisdom. That's what they were straining for, and they were used for in those in the old world. Uh, so these men, no doubt, would have been consultants to the king of Nabate. And there's good reason to, to think that's where they are, in Nabate. That would have been the headquarters of Arabia, the capital of Arabia. So if we believe those first century writers that the wise men came from Arabia, they came from Arabia to, to, to find the child, then that's surely where they were. And they served the king of Nabate. Um, and, and the gifts are an indication that that's where they came from, John, because gold, frankincense, and myrrh mm. were the commodities of Nabate. The, the, the tree sap of the myrrh and the frankincense that only grows in Southern Arabia. And of course, we all know King Solomon's mines, the gold mines of Midian, all of that was controlled by King Aratas, of Nabate. So this was him sending the local uh, uh, treasured commodities to another king in the hopes of buying peace and tranquility. He said, go to Herod, go take him this tribute, because he imagined Herod had a new son. That's what these wise men were telling him. There's a new king in Judea. Well, the king says, Herod must have a new son. Bring him some gifts and let's go keep the peace. That's not why the wise men went. They went for a religious motivation. But there's a political drama going on here as well. Yes, and there's a lot of light and darkness, and so yes. the star is very significant. What is the star of Bethlehem then? Oh, well, now this is, this is of course, the million-dollar question, John. Astronomers and researchers and scientists have wrestled over this for centuries. Uh, I, I've interviewed maybe five or six of them. We're doing a Fox Nation uh, documentary on this topic. There's no clear shot, single shot here that tells us this is what they saw. Some believe it was Jupiter in the constellation of Aries, and that that's how they interpreted a royal, you know, the royal planet with the, the Judean uh, constellation. Others say it was a series of astral events, a comet and a cluster of planets. Whatever they saw, John, here's the key for us. They were looking up, as the Gospels say, they, they had their eyes on the things above rather than earthly things. It was that yearning for something other, knowledge from God, something eternal. They were yearning for it. They were looking for it. And that's what led them to the true light, the light they found in Bethlehem. And that really is all we need to concern ourselves with. I think you can get yourself in knots, worried about what did they see? What was the star? When did it move? I, I think that's a parlor game you can never really answer. So to me, it's not all that important. The best explanation, I think, is Jupiter and Aries, which they may have interpreted as a king in Judea. Why do you think it's important to have the his history of this correct and accurate? I mean, I guess the answer is obvious, but I'd just like to hear that from you. No. Well, it's not, because a lot of biblical scholars say the wise men are fables. This is a fable mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, kind of an exotic story that Matthew puts at the front end of his gospel. But you have to ask the question, Matthew wrote for a Jewish audience. Mm -hmm. Why would he open the gospel with these wise men? They start the story. Why? What are the, and why do the others leave them out? 
But the real point of, is this. If these wise men are rooted in history, and I believe they are, if you can situate them in a certain place at the time of the birth of Christ, it lends credence not only to them and what they were about, but also to the one they sought. It lends credence to the historicity and the roots and the reality of the Christ child. And at Christmas, I think it's important for people to consider it. I, I, we don't get anywhere following tall tales and believing you know, lies. And we see so often the kings at these nativity pageants and plays, you know, you have the, the here come the three kings and they're just kind of appendages. What are they there for? I think they were there for a particular reason. And Matthew inserts them there for a particular reason, which we can get into if you like. Yeah, it's just an amazing what you've done. When you talk about, you know, getting the history correct, are they portrayed outside the Bible? Are there accounts of these wise yes. men every, and from other sources? Because I know you can get a lot of source material on other yeah. characters of that time. Yes. I, I wasn't sure about the wise men. Well, there are there are accounts of them. Some of them, look, I, I mean, I found originally, you know, this is a part of a legend series. My last two books were legends. The, mm. the, the spider who saved Christmas, the thief who found heaven uh, or stole heaven. Those are legends, but they fall into the cracks of the gospel stories. Well, I was going to tell a legend here of the wise men. When I started investigating, all I found were legends. It was all legendary. So I, uh, what I discovered is the reality is more interesting than all these legends. So yes, there's a gospel account, uh, a, a gospel of the wise men, a Syrian uh, manuscript or an Armenian, uh, yes, a Syrian manuscript that, you know, it's make-believe. It was created 600 years later. Um, there are all kinds of mentions of them in, in the Coptic literature and, and the Far East literature. But the historicity of them is the place where they came from, where they, what they brought, all indicates that they are reality. They did exist. They the actually existed. The most compelling thing for me is this. Margaret Barker and other historians, ancient world historians, those who focus on the Old Testament and the dead languages, they have come across uh, documents like Philo of Alexandria. And this is a historian who, who, he decodes these three gifts this way. The gold were in the vestments of the first temple priesthood. Now, who are the first temple priesthood? I'd never heard of these guys, never. They're in the Old Testament. King Josiah, purges the first temple and sends them in exile. Where do they go, John? They go to Arabia. They go to exactly where these wise men come from. So chances are their descendants were keeping the old faith, the old ways, and that royal priesthood alive in Petra, in Arabia. So the gifts they bring are also significant religiously. Gold was part of the vestments of that royal priesthood, the so-called order of Melchizedek, Catholics will recognize that. It's mentioned at every Catholic Mass, the Order of Melchizedek. These are the priests of Melchizedek. Frankincense was burned in the first temple, but most importantly, myrrh. Myrrh oil was kept in the Holy of Holies, only in the first temple, and it was used to anoint kings, but more explicitly, members of the royal priesthood of the first temple. So these three wise men are not just going to drop off gifts and say, hi, kid, to the baby in Bethlehem. There would be no reason for a king or anybody else to do that. But if you have a religious drive and you believe this is the Messiah, the answer, the promised one, they're going to welcome him and anoint him 
into that royal priesthood and thereby restore the first temple worship in Jerusalem. So for them, it's a religious uh, uh, goal and it takes on such a wider significance at Christmas time than just three royal guys doing a drive-by. How long did the journey take them? And when they got to the stable, how long did they stay there? Did they get a welcome, hang out? I mean, these guys were pretty elegant. Yes. You know, did well, they have coffee or drinks or what? Well, first of all, they didn't go to the stable, John. Okay. That's another. You know, we always put the kings next to the stable mm. scene. and That's the, the way shepherds. we do it. Yeah. This happened months, maybe years later. Okay, the timeline tells us it could be a year or two later when the wise men actually go. And remember, it's only a three to five day journey if you're slow from Petra to Jerusalem. It's just around the Dead Sea. It's not a long journey. So, and, and I put them, and it was part of the reason I love this, a hundred years before Jesus is born in the kingdom of Nabate, something amazing happens. They introduce Arabian horses. So I decided oh, yes. to put the wise men on Arabian horses because wow. this is very likely what they would have ridden. Now, I put camels and things in the background, which you'll see. Camels were for carrying the heavy load. But if you wanted to move at this time and you were from Arabia, you rode those steeds. So I love that drama, that, uh, the, the, the drive of that. And we incorporated it, and it's historically accurate. Uh, there's a good reason, by the way, that they rode Arabian horses. Arabians have one less rib than other breeds of horse, and therefore their lung capacity is greater, and they can run for longer distances without tiring. So it all makes sense. Yeah. So we better give up singing We Three Kings. That's Well, we can still do it for entertainment, but it's gone, right? Well, it's a little... It's a little misleading. And, and I, I will tell you, I can't tell you who or where, but uh, I am working on with an artist on a revision of that song for this Christmas, one that is historically accurate. She was actually inspired by the book and decided to play with the lyrics a bit and, and is going to do a release. But I can't give details just yet. But it's good. Really interesting. Well, we could take some guesses, but we, we won't yeah. spoil that. You're getting a great reception on your book tours. Um yeah it's selling really well and you released it early although we're you know yeah. time flies so fast you gotta get I these know. books out so fast so who is your audience i would assume christians catholics evangelicals or everyone who who reads the book my audience is anyone who's ever thought that it was three kings who came to the manger at christmas time that mm. that is my audience it's really anybody and i've had non-believers christians Evangelicals, Catholics. I even had a I had a big group of Jewish uh, uh, ladies in in Los Angeles a few weeks ago, and they were amazed at, because I told them about you know what what Margaret Barker and others are suggesting. And again, I leave that vague in the book. Zoroastrian priests they could be members of this first temple priesthood, a Jewish temple priesthood. But whatever the case, it unites all people. The wise men are a wonderful uniter. They're outsiders. They're not saints. They're just people who are searching and willing to move on their convictions and their search for truth. And that's the lesson for us, I think, not only at Christmas, but always. You have to pursue the truth. You have to keep your eyes high 
and keep looking at the things above and not get dragged down by the things below, which we all can at times. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Raymond Arroyo, out with a beautiful Christmas book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. These wise men visited, did it change their lives? Did it confirm something in their mind that there was this great, powerful figure coming on Earth, as we're told, to save save us? it, It certainly transforms them, and it moves them so much. You know, the Gospels tell us Uh, They were warned in a dream not to go back home. Don't Mm. go back to Nabate because it could endanger the child. And what what the gospel doesn't say is they would have been endangered too. Here's why. Chances are Herod would have been on a warpath looking for this kid. His first first, uh, uh, movement would have been send a messenger to the king of Nabate and tell him to bring those damned wise men to me, the guys who told me there was a king to be born. I want to see them. Had they gone back to Nabate, King Aratus very likely would have had to put them in chains and send them back to Herod. But so they avoid that. They can't even go back home. Uh, What Herod does then, of course, is pronounce a death sentence on every child under two in his kingdom. That's how paranoid he was about preserving his throne. But the wise men go into hiding, likely in Damascus. Tradition tells us they went to Damascus. And there are some who believe that they are the people who trained St. Paul. St. Paul vanishes for two years into Arabia. That's what the gospel Mm. says, for three years. For three years, he goes, after he falls off the horse, he has his conversion and he goes to Arabia. What happens during those three years? We don't know. But there is a traditional, uh, there are traditional writings that suggest that he studied with perhaps these wise men or their, very likely these wise men or their descendants. And mm. the place he he studied with them, I think it's called Kobal, K-O-B-A-L, and it means the shrine of the star, which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned- A lot of interesting historical threads that come together. Once you look at this correctly in the proper historic setting, and that's all I'm trying to do. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know what their names are. We don't know how many there were. We only know these figures existed and were, were compelled to go to this child. But the fact is they're the most popular figures of Christmas after Mary, Joseph, and of course, the baby Jesus. Popular, um, um, I guess, as cultural figures and religious mm-hmm. figures. Mm-hmm. In South America, Central America, of course, all over Europe mm-hmm. and in the mm-hmm. East, they celebrate Christmas on the Feast of the Epiphany yes. when the wise men came to the child Jesus. So if you're going to celebrate and, and, and focus so much on these guys in this moment, you better know who they are. I'm pointing you toward the wise men, the real wise men. Yeah. So Feast of the Epiphany, January the 6th, yes. celebrated in Europe to, yes. to this day and in South America, not so much here in the U.S. No. 
No, well, in New Orleans we celebrate it because. Well, you guys uh, are different in New Orleans. Yes, but uh, <laughs> January sixth is the feast of the Epiphany, the Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. It is the twelfth night of Christmas hmm. and the beginning of the carnival season for us. So we really extend that Christmas journey all the way to Lent, to Ash Wednesday, um, which is kind of a beautiful thing. We have King Cake, which I hope they'll change to Magi Cake after reading the book. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it it illuminates and slightly shifts our understanding of a very important. Uh, and venerated holiday for a lot of people around the world. And I think an important reflective moment for all of us at Christmas. And, and just quickly on January 6th, I know in Europe and Spain, they give gifts on yes. January 6th. Do you do that in New Orleans? Well, we do. I, I, we always have done it with the children. I think my children just want an extra third round of gifts, but you know, <laughs> they, give, they get gifts on St. On Saint, Saint, uh, Nicholas's feast day at the top of, of December, mm -hmm. and then on Christmas, and then they get, the, the epiphany is kind of the last, the pickup of the last little things you might have missed along the yeah. way. So, yeah, they, they do. And there's still big celebrations and all around the world. So it's important to know. And I hope people don't only focus on the wise men who found Christmas, but that all my readers re-find, rediscover Christmas in a new way after encountering the story. Yeah, well, New Orleans is party central, but it's a very, it's a Catholic city, as we spoke <laughs> about is. in the past. Picking you up on something really interesting, Herod, and, you know, ordering the execution of uh, little children. There was infanticide back in the day. We talk about, you know, you know, I'm pro-life, you are too. But that was the early, uh, that was an early period of time where we had abortion and infanticide, right? Mm. These they were yeah, terrible yeah, no, times. Well, was, human life was cheap. and. Yeah. Herod, you know, I just interviewed a, a, a Herod expert um, who written a number of books about Herod. Herod was so paranoid, he, he literally wiped out three of his children and a wife to protect his throne. So he was not above killing. So that's the world you find yourself in. And here comes, you know, God could have taken any form. He could have come as an emperor. He could have come as a warrior. He yeah. comes as a tiny baby, as the most defenseless thing at that time, and the one of the least value. Mm. So in the doing, God is elevating the importance and the worth of that tiny nascent human life and reteaching the old world what it means to be human and what it means to love from the beginning to the very end of life. So uh, yeah, there's another message there. And look, it's, it's the beauty of Christmas. It's the coming yeah. of life and a child and God as a child. And hopefully it gets people to reflect on um, the wonder of that and the majesty of that. And, and I, I weave that into this story too. These, um, there's a neat spread. I don't know if I can show it to you. Uh, Benedict the 16th, you know, I, I did take one little, I took a couple of liberties, but definitely this one. Um, there is a wonderful, in some of the old legends, they, they, they say that the light came not from the star down to the house where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were, but that the light came up from the house to the star. I captured that in the illustration. And Benedict XVI once wrote in his nativity book, um, the child, the star doesn't direct anyone to the child. The child is directing the star. And I liked that idea. So you'll see here the light streaming up from the star rather than the other way around when they finally come to the house and the interior spread even reveals more. So I, I 
that's just a kind of little theatrical and theological flourish that you can weave into the illustrations. You don't really have to get into it very much, though, with words. People feel it. They know it. This is your third um, installment in your Legend series. Um, and the, I mentioned the spider who saved Christmas. And before that, yeah. there was the thief who stole heaven. And now right. we have the wise man who found Christmas. You you love this. You're enjoying it. And it's, I mean, obviously, you're passionate. And you're well, I, I love your faith here, I must admit. You know, I without flattering you this means a lot to you and does it bring you closer to your faith when you can actually get this history and say oh my gosh this is totally yeah. real because john i go it as a, as a skeptic you know i i mean when i when i first read about the wise men i read a lot of biblical commentary and you read biblical commentary and a lot of them say oh this is fable this is make-believe and i accepted that and then i started poking around these ancient texts and talking to clinical scientists astrologers uh, you know, uh, uh, readers of these ancient texts and historians and archaeologists. Archaeologists have no skin in the game. They just tell you what they dug up and what what's there. When you when you put all that together, you realize they were very likely historic personages. And how many of them, I don't know. But they were they certainly existed at this time, and they must have had an important role here, or Matthew wouldn't have included them. Which is why the first temple priesthood makes sense to me. They were restoring the ancient ways. Oh, you'll love this. Margaret Barker, again, that, that uh, old world linguist, she translated and claims in the Hebrew, wise men from the East translates also to wise men from ancient times, from ancient times. What does that mean? Well, it could mean the priesthood of 700 years ago. It explains a lot. You start looking at it in this context, everything comes into focus. And that's all I really want to do. And my other motive here is to enchant and excite and entertain families during the holidays to focus on something that's real. It's not just escapism. It's real, but it's high adventure. It means something. It has real meaning. And the little, uh, the, the, the repetitious lines that the kings say, each one of these wise men say something in the book. One says, we have to follow the light. Balthazar says, we have to go to the king. And the last, Casper says, we make, have to make haste to find the truth. Each of them is right in their own way. And those, those lines change as the book goes on. But that's really where we all are every Christmas, following the light, going to the king, and making haste to find the truth, I hope. Look, this thing is, is it, it oozes with the miraculous around the edges. Our point, and this is what I always say, when you, if I were to focus on the miraculous as a, as an author, you would lose the audience because there's nothing for them to hold on to. Yeah. We, you know, and we often ignore the miraculous. So my point here is to root you in what we can see and touch and feel and know. And then you see the cracks of the miraculous all around this story. But that almost comes out organically. I don't have to lean into that. That's there. The story itself, that the, the one they're seeking, that's the miraculous. More, more important for me as an author is to peel away all of those accretions over time of, of, of status, of names, of all the fictions that have gathered around this story and knock it out of the way to try to see why they're important, what they're there for, and, and, and therefore seeing more clearly the object of their desire, the focus of their journey.
Well, it's just a great read. I recommend everybody pick up a copy. And um, what's next up for you? What's your next uh -huh. book? Are you going to give a us a, a spoiler books. alert here? No, yeah, a little bit. Well, I'll give you a little tease. Uh, it's, it's a series called Turnabout Tales, and it's coming out from HarperCollins in the spring. And it focuses on great lives, young lives, when they faced a crisis and a decision was made in that moment of crisis that altered their path. And then all of history shifted and changed as that life changed. Uh, the first book is The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. It's about Edison as a young boy and the challenge he faced and overcame that turned him into an inventor. I dare not say more, but it's coming in the, uh, in the spring. And then there's a series of others. Again, I, I love history. I love, I love real life. And we forget so much. And they're instructive, like the wise men's tale. Edison's tale is instructive to us. It teaches particularly young families and young people that all is not lost. And even in the darkness, there is light if you're looking for it. That's what all these stories point to. And, and I'm delighted to be able to tell them on a platform and in a way that not only children, but adults receive them as well. And most of all, together. Yeah, we need those leadership and inspiring uh, figures, those who rose up from adversity and got through the worst and exactly. came out of the darkness and into the light. Exactly. I, again, I'm just amazed with your energy. You're on Fox, EWTN. The midterms are coming up. Uh, I'm just going to go off script slightly, if you don't okay. mind me asking you, is the country in a better place than it was a year ago when we last spoke? Or is there more chaos? Are we in a calm before the storm? Where do you see yeah. everything in America? Well, look, I mean, the, the, the beauty of the American experiment, I always describe it as the American experiment. That's how the founders saw it. It's an ongoing experiment, and it relies on very important things, the right to vote being principle among them. So America is eternally youthful and new in this way. You can change. You have the power to change the direction of the country. But that comes slowly. It doesn't come quick. I think there's a lot of pain. There's inflation and crime and yeah. the, the culture is collapsing. So many families feel at sea. Um, but I, I do think there's a sense of um, rambunctiousness right now uh, and displeasure among the American people. That will no doubt be felt and heard through these midterm elections. Uh, but at the same time, I would issue one caution. And I, I've said this in various iterations and I'll have to come up with some new ways to say it. But the American experiment relies on two things at its core. And Ben Franklin, Sam Adams all wrote about this. It relies on an informed populace and a moral people. Because if, if the people are ignorant and immoral, they can have as many votes as you want. You will get ignorant and immoral leadership. And that was their great fear about the experiment itself. We'll see if Americans are capable of choosing informed and moral people. Stay tuned. We'll have you back to talk about that and your next book. Yeah. Raymond Arroyo, uh, thank you for being on my show. The name of your new book is The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. There it Go is. And buy it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Thank on. you. Thank you. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne.
You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.